0: An equation is essentially anything that uh, increases safety, increases cues of safety to your brain over over the long run can reduce pain. Anything that increases cues of, of threat increases pain.
1: Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. We need to revolutionize our understanding of pain. Most of us hold on to this false belief that pain is a measure of tissue damage and the two are correlated linearly a detector of physical injury if you will but i'm speaking to dr monty lyman who argues that pain is a protector rather than a detector dr monty lyman is a medical doctor and research fellow at the university of oxford and his first book the remarkable life of skin was shortlisted for the 2019 Royal Society Science Book Prize and was Radio 4's Book of the Week and a Sunday Times Book of the Year. Today, Monty and I discuss what pain really is his personal journey of dealing with pain from IBS, how hypnotherapy and homeopathy might work to reduce pain, even if you don't believe in that, why loneliness and lack of community can lead to pain, the concept of neuroplasticity and its relationship to pain, as well as movement, visualization, and how pain education can help reduce and rewire our relationship with painful stimuli. In this new piece of work, The Painful Truth, Honestly, he beautifully presents a collection of patient stories, personal experiences, and importantly, the evidence base for a more nuanced understanding of pain. And I highly recommend it as a read. You can find that on the podcast show notes. I'm doing a new thing, which is our podcast recipe of the week that relates to the topic of conversation on this week's podcast podcast inflammation is a huge huge issue when it comes to pain we actually talk about that at the end and if you're interested in more about an anti-inflammatory diet and why that relates to pain you should also listen to an episode that i did with dr deepak ravindran all about pain and the seven ways in which you can improve your relationship with it i'm choosing the green bean salad that you can find on the app the link to which is in the show notes, iPhone only, Android users, please bear with me. I am definitely working on an Android version and you t- you can check it out if you don't have the app on this week's newsletter, Eat, Listen, Read. Just head to thedoctorskitchen.com and not only do I send you a recipe to cook every week, but also some mindfully curated content. It might be something to listen to, something to read, something to watch, something that will help you lead a healthier and happier week the response has been brilliant from it I'm really proud of that newsletter and uh, I try and read all the feedback as much as I can anyway I'm going to stop waffling on this is my wonderful wonderful conversation with Dr. Monty I'm sure you're going to absolutely love it I've read this one, as you can tell. Um, I got the early copy wow. and uh, I just, I remember, yeah, it's well-leafed. I remember just like take, like folding so many pages that like, I need to look into this. Like, this is absolutely fascinating. But I wanted to start actually by asking you about how you got into writing in itself, because you write so well. Uh, and I wonder if this is a skill that's something... You, that, that's something that you, you developed early on or, you know, wh- wh- where did this love of writing come from?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a good
1: question. I think
0: I, when I was at school, I didn't know whether I wanted to do medicine or science or or do something where I'd do more writing. I mean, sort of, I loved philosophy, I loved history, I loved literature. But there, there was this moment in um, one of my bi- biology classes, I had a great biology teacher, where he got us to write an essay on um, I think the essay, the essay title was Are Viruses Alive? And it really got me into sort of understanding that there is deep sort of uh, philosophy, um, deep richness to biology, the natural world, mm. uh, the human body. And then I decided to go down the medicine route and hoping that maybe I could be doing some writing along the side. I, I never thought I'd, I'd end up writing, writing books. And I think that so my latest book on pain, it wasn't even a book. During medical school, I wasn't that interested in pain. Pain was a sort of a, um, a, a symptom of more interesting diseases, I thought. But actually, there are a number of episodes in, in my uh, career as a, a junior doctor that made me realise, actually, I think we completely misunderstand pain. Mm. And I wanted to communicate that to people. And that, I, for me, that's most, I most naturally do that through, through writing, sort of the long form. So I, I started sort of getting a manuscript together for that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I and we've spoken to um, uh, Dr. Deepak Ravindran, who I I understand you know as well. well you've written about in your final yeah. chapter. Yeah, he he he's an amazing chap. Um, I wonder just to anchor the listener, we could go into exactly what we mean by pain. I know mm-hmm. we've discussed this before, but I think for this, this is particularly pertinent because it frames everything else that we're going to be talking about that you've eloquently written. Uh, in, the, in the book, so so, what do we mean by pain?
0: Um, I mean there
1: are lots of different
0: uh, d- definitions of trying to get to what pain is. People often, when I was uh, when I told people I was writing about pain, they said, "Oh, you're going to be talking about sort of you know um, sort of emotional pain and things like that." I'm just focusing on what we sort of, sort of we we tend to terms sort of physical pain, quote unquote. But actually, pain is simply a horrible feeling in our body. That urges us to protect a body part. That's all pain is. That's the core of what pain is. Um, and it can be short term, which is known as acute pain, but it can also persist for months and years and decades. And that's traditionally been termed chronic pain. I and lots of other people in the area prefer to call it persistent pain um, because chronic, sort of a, a lot of people don't really know what it means and it can. It can be quite a defeating word to a lot of people as well mm. um so i think persistent pain is i prefer to use that but yeah acute pain is a short-term pain and and chronic pain are a very different beast
1: yeah yeah and and you talk about this concept of uh injury not being necessary nor sufficient for pain and i wonder if we could sort of dive into that a bit more because most people when they come across pain it's in the physical sense uh, and it's a response to a physical mechanism, but that's not necessarily the case.
0: Yeah, and that was the, just the amazing discovery that, well, it wasn't my, my discovery, but when I realised it as a junior doctor and I looked at the, the research, it was just amazing that most of us completely misunderstand pain. And by most of us, mm. I mean uh, lots of people in the, in the medical field as well. We, we quite understandably assume that pain is an accurate measure of tissue damage. That there are sort of pain receptors and pain pathways that um, go to your brain at, like a sort of ringing a bell. So you pull the end of a, um, a rope and then a bell rings at the end. And for a lot of short-term pain, you know, that, that makes sense. You know, you, you slam your, your thumb in your laptop, it hurts a little bit. You slam it in a car door, it hurts a lot more. But actually the relationship between injury and pain in chronic pain, um, in persistent pain and long-term pain, is, is not so clear-cut. Um, and actually, many, many cases, perhaps the majority of cases of um, persistent pain, pain has lasted uh, beyond the time that the wound should usually heal, so that's often sort of three to six months, it varies. Pain that goes on for years, often whatever caused the initial injury has completely healed um, or has mostly healed, the pain has become wired in the brain. And the critical thing is, you know, I'm not, say, I'm not saying it's all in your head. It's, it's become wired in the brain. It's neurological. It's you know, as real as, as epilepsy. But that, that means that the, the, the whole approach to it is, is completely different. If I can, I, basically there's a, there's a, a story, a, a patient that I saw in my first year as a, uh, as a gene doctor that I'd, I'd like, to, like to share. This is sort of the moment that I realised that this isn't just like an academic Um, misunderstanding it affects the lives of of millions of people so I was in my first year as a as a junior doctor I've changed some of the details Uh, but but basically I was on a um, an acute medical unit so basically it was this the step so if you go to A&E with a problem you are then sent to either an acute medical unit if you've got a, a medical problem or a surgical unit if you've got a surgical problem and other other units potentially, and what we do is we go and see all the different uh, the patients who've been who would come to us uh, from A and E, and I would sort of chase after the consultant with a sort of a um, a pile of notes, like hurriedly, like scribbling what he was um, saying very quickly, and seeing the patients and deciding whether they need to go to another ward and stay in the hospital or whether they could be discharged home. And there was um, a, a patient uh, let's call him Paul, who was an IT worker. In his mid forties, who had terrible, terrible back pain, and he'd had it for over six months. It started in the sort of lower lower left side of his back, and it progressively got worse over six months. It got worse in intensity, it had become constant, and it spread across his back. And because of that, basically, he'd lost his job, and he was over the last couple of weeks, he he was going through a divorce, essentially, partly related to the pain. And that morning he was in so much pain he couldn't get out of bed. ended up calling an ambulance. Went to A and E, and for various reasons the doctors wanted to sort of rule out, um, you know, all of the causes of the back pain. So we had loads of blood tests, an MRI scan, and all the results came back completely normal. So then when I came to this patient with the consultant, the consultant looked at looks at the, the computer, looks at the the notes, and said to Paul, "The good thing is there's nothing physically wrong with you." Um, and then Paul, who was still clutching his lower back, beads of sweat running down his face, uh, said, are you saying it's all in my head then? And I can't quite remember what the consultant said, but I was a really really good consultant, but it was a bit of a a fudge, I think. And the patient was sent home with some painkillers. And I sort of realized, I mean, looking back on it, I, I realized that the patient was either thinking that the pain is in his body so there's something that the doctors can't detect. And there's some horrible thing going on that the doctors can't detect that's causing his pain. Or it's sort of all in his head. So it's sort of some kind of thought disorder that he can just quite easily think away. And I think that's, that's the problem. Because actually, it's, if it's become wired in his brain, if it's neurological, if it's physical and mental and completely real, there is, a, there is another way to address this. Um, and I think that sort of modern medicine has real difficulties with that.
1: Yeah, and 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 this is really a spillover effect, I think, from the separation of uh, mind and, and body, and that we've essentially been taught that that structure during med school. Mm. And mm. I, and I, I wonder if we can dive into that um, example that you you gave there, because I think this plays out in so many different scenarios across the healthcare system in this country and, and, and others, of, of course, as well, in many different ways. Because I think if you can't find that physical manifestation of pain, people feel either dismissed mm-hmm. or that there's something that we've missed mm-hmm. or something or the suggestion that this is psychological, ergo, you have a mental health problem, you need to focus on that. And there's nothing that we can do. Whereas actually, I think what your your book and, and the research now beautifully explains is that it's a, it's almost like a continuum. It's like you can have that initial stressor that can be physical, but then that leads to other things like rewiring of the brain such that the pain is absolutely real. I mean, there's no way that the, the pain can't be real if you've got beads of sweat going down your face yeah. and you're clutching mm-hmm. your back as well. It's very, very real. But the way in which we treat it is has to be reimagined it has to be changed Uh, completely
0: and i think one of the the ways in which persistent pain has tried to be treated by by doctors um over the the past half century and and, and beyond has been through um painkillers and and opioids for strong pain which are miraculous in short-term pain um but very rarely are the only Solution in in long term pain and in most cases aren't the solution. That combined with various things has, has resulted in in the over op- prescription of opioids. I'm not saying that opioids shouldn't be prescribed because they can be very helpful, but there are there are there are other ways. And I think understanding understanding what pain is is very important. So I think understanding that pain isn't a detector. It's not an accurate detector of tissue damage, but it's a it's a protector. It's a protective mechanism um so the brain is always trying to decide um from inputs in the environment from past experience and what it thinks is going to happen is is trying to basically is trying to protect us and in many cases it can become overprotective so say you have that some kind of some injury in your back that heals the brain is going to be very very protective of of the spinal cord, even though it's incredibly, incredibly tough, a combination of the the signals, if the pain persists, can become sort of it's called central sensitization. Basically, the brain it becomes sensitized, so that any kind of signal, even if it's not a a danger signal, it can um, start to cause pain, and it gets worse, and it can stay stay longer. And the brain essentially becomes sort of rewired, and then negative thoughts associated with that beliefs. That your your back is crumbling. The just the very the very thoughts of that, even sometimes seeing MRI scans, which I'll go on go on to in a second, um, they don't actually often show very much, can make pain worse and can can make people go down this horrible, horrible spiral. And I think with MRI MRI scans of, of, of backs, um, there have been lots of studies where they've done MRI scans of people who have no pain at all. And roughly 20% of, I say forty percent of twenty-year-olds, and almost all eighty-year-olds have some signs of, sort of disc degeneration, and no pain at all. And also things like um, elements of this, what looks like a slip disc and things like that um, are very common in people without any pain. And often these these are sort of medically as important as wrinkles. But obviously there are more serious serious sort of back damage that can cause pain in the in the, in the long run. That's key. and, and another important thing that I, I need to make clear is that the receptors that um say in our, in our skin that um, say if you, you burn your finger that transmits a signal to your brain and that pain is created that that's actually not necessarily a pain signal so it's it's called uh, it's called nociception which is essentially danger detection so they're danger signals your essentially your unconscious brain has to decide whether these danger signals are worth causing pain and these these signals are neither necessary nor sufficient for causing pain so there are some some quite sort of in in the pain field some quite well-known examples of sort of pain being caused without injury and and the opposite so for example so just to get some clear examples of why you know injury isn't uh isn't pain um there's there's a case study and there are some other case studies like this of a a British builder in the, about sort of 20 years ago or so who was uh, climbing down his, uh, the scaffolding from a building, decided to jump the last few metres, landed on a, uh, a wooden plank, but it was a wooden plank with a sort of, I think it was a 15-inch or maybe a bit, bit smaller, nails sticking out of it, and went straight through his boot, um, through one side and out the other side. He was in absolute agony. Um, uh, went to, to A&E, ended up having fentanyl, which is a very, very powerful opioid, a lot more powerful than morphine, Um, and he has to have a sedative as well he was just in absolute agony Um, the uh, surgeons very carefully cut the boot off to reveal that the nail had gone between his toes and hadn't um, damaged any skin whatsoever and then you've got cases of so the 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 brain very understandably had predicted that the foot wasn't damaged or the the foot was in danger or damaged and created pain and there have, been lots of, there have been some other studies where um, subjects have um, uh, had had a sort of, a, a sort of a head stimulator put over their heads, but it's a it's a, it's a sham, and they, they were they were told that um, they're going to have sort of currents delivered through the head stimulator that will cause headaches, and in most people it did cause a headache, even though there wasn't actually any current going through it. And then you've got cases of say, soldiers in the battlefield who are shot and don't feel, and the body decides in that moment uh, that. Pain is not as important as getting off the battlefield. So, if you, um, if the bottom line is survival, in most cases, the body wants to be a pessimist. The body wants to create pain, Um, but in very extreme cases, actually getting yourself off the battlefield is more important in the short term than actually than actually having pain. Um, So, I think it it boils down to understanding that it's a protect. The brain is a, a pain is a protector, not a detector. And then, if you're thinking about treatment, the an, an equation is essentially anything that uh, increases safety, in, increases cues of safety to your brain over over the long run can reduce pain. Anything that increases cues of, of threat increases pain.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and this that's a really good formula, I think, for us to stick within our minds, I think, is if anyone's listening to this, because this comes to fruition in lots of different ways when you talk about society, loneliness, sense of purpose, all these different things that give us warmth and, and security um, can dictate the levels of pain that we perceive. And I just wanted to go into uh, one of those case studies. I think in the extreme example of the builder who expects that the nail has gone through the foot and therefore perceives quite you know literally there is a excruciating pain when actually there is no physical injury that expectation I think is 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 quite key and, and you, you've actually dedicated a whole chapter to the expectation effect and I, 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 lo- I don't know if you can remember but because there's so many studies that you talk about in the book but there is one that really stood out to me which is, about changing the brain through expectation um, and hope. And it was the wisdom tooth trial oh, where they yeah. used fentanyl, naloxone and saline. Would you mind telling us a bit about that? Because I, I found that like incredible to, to, to read. Mm, mm. I think, yeah,
0: it's that's such an interesting area, the whole area of what's the traditionally termed sort of placebo effect mm. and the opposite of it, which is the, the nocebo effect. So if you think you're going to be in more, uh, more pain than you, than you will, um, but as you as you as you rightly said, the expectation effect is a, is a, is a, is, a, is a better is a better term, and I think this is so much relevance for all interactions between anyone. It does not necessarily a doctor and a patient. It can be anyone and someone else who's in pain. Basically, And I think there's a huge responsibility for people who are um, need to look out for people and help people who are in pain because. It's so hard to do these things on your own. So the, the wisdom tooth study is really interesting and it shows how kind of fear is, uh, um, fear and confidence are so contagious. So essentially there were um, two groups of um, dentists um, doing um, a wisdom tooth um, operation on, on patients. One group of dentists were told that to sort of, the, the injection they were giving around, around the wisdom tooth was either going to be um, a... Uh, a placebo, or it was going to be um, a, an opioid, uh, sort of analgesic, so that they, they, they knew that the patient will, you know, the 50 50% chance of the patient not being in pain. Um, so 50% chance of the patient um, having pain relief, 50% chance of it being um, a placebo. And then the other group was split into either um, placebo or. Um, uh, so um, basically naloxone, which is something that definitely blocks, um, you, you definitely like you won't have any pain relief with that because it blocks opioid receptors. Essentially, the, the, the dentists who knew that there was a 50-50%, chance, a 50-50 chance of them having pain relief, in the placebo section of their patients, they experienced um, pain relief. But in the other half of the dentists, In their placebo group, because the dentists knew, and the dentist couldn't tell the patients anything. That's an important thing. Um, In the placebo section of the other group, where they they were either getting placebo or definitely not pain relief, the placebo group experienced uh, pain, worsening pain. So, what that what that means is essentially the the the, um, nonverbal cues, the kind of the confidence that the that the dentist had, and knowing. What they were potentially giving the patient was transmitted to the patient, and the patient ended up experiencing more more pain, more pain, basically, even though they were having a placebo. Um, and I think that's that's that is hugely important. That in the, in in the fact that um, clinicians really need to be so supportive and hopeful with patients. And I think a lot of um, sort of psychological and sort of combined psychological and sort of functional therapies that are being used for. For um, persistent pain um the ones that work have a, co- a combination i think of acceptance being realistic about things and where you are at the moment but also hope for the future and that things can change and i think conveying hope conveying um care conveying love is is medicine in and of itself
1: absolutely you know th- this that particular example and that particular study really stood out to me as a clinician as well because those nonverbal cues those little ways in which we describe things the way we describe an x-ray the way we describe a treatment you know all these things are are literally having an effect and i think Mm -hmm. this particular study should be discussed amongst Mm -hmm. junior clinicians in particular because it it really would stay with me throughout my career as to how i interact you know even taking the example of the consultant and the person who came in with back pain for example um, and, and I think the, the reason why I wanted to talk about this is because I understand you've had your own experience with IBS, something that you, you suffered with with, with for, for quite a while now, where you were given a, uh, a sugar pill, essentially a homeopathic treatment, and you know about how homeopathy has been debunked, and you your skepticism was already there, so you weren't expecting any effect, but I'm, I'm assuming the giver of said medication was a true believer of this mm-hmm. pill mm-hmm. and that somehow has transferred and i would wonder if you, you you'd share that story with us because i i thought that was super powerful
0: oh yeah this was sort of mind-blowing for me at, at, at the time and more so looking back on it i um so for um uh, yeah for as long as i can remember i've had ibs which is sort of ranged from sort of a um, bit of an irritation to like not being able to get off out of bed basically, um, which has been, I've actually been basically almost been completely cured through sessions of hypnotherapy, which is another story. But when I was younger, I was having a particularly bad episode. I think it was a like a, a Sunday afternoon in a, in a in a family home. I'm not going to make sure, I'm not going to sort of mention who the person who, who gave the homeopathic pill was, but it was someone, you know, someone a family member I, I love dearly um, who said, oh, you should take this this pill, this home, homeopathic pill, um, for your for your IBS. And um, you know, I, I, I was and homeopathy remained skeptical about uh, its claims, and I think just to sort of to, to please them, I I took the pill. Uh, it was in this sort of packet with this sort of faux Latin name uh, on it, and it was this little what I assumed uh, and I still assume it was a sugar pill, and took it anyway. And my IBS was completely cured, <laughs> well, for at least for that day, and there have been some really so i think that's what what you what you mentioned about the kind of the that the the transferring of that that hope and that love was a huge element of it and there's also another whole new area of research which is emerging which is um really interesting called open label placebos so honest placebos yeah
1: um
0: so could you give people placebos uh, telling them that it's a placebo but through um various various sort of mechanisms it can actually reduce pain and um and there have been some studies that that show that it is it is quite effective in in thing in say ibs is one example but some other types of pain i'm not at at the moment suggesting that that's it's a good solution um to pain but it might have it might have um roles in say for example if people are tapering off off something like opioids or um or sort of other medications, sort of interspersing it with honest placebos might might have, have a role. But the fact that it works at all is quite interesting. And again, the, the theories behind it, again, it's very, you know, how could a placebo work if you know that it's a placebo? Um, perhaps an element of it is is our predictive brain. And a lot of the predictive brain is in areas of our brain associated with doing things Um um, and not just sort of thinking about things, not just the cognitive bit. So it's emotions, it's rituals, it's things like that. So actually, the very process of just taking the pill, even if you have doubts about it working, can have some kind of healing process. The, you know, the extent of that, it will, uh, we, you know, we yet to find out. But it's 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 really interesting, and I think it's sort of bolstering the theory that actually, you know, that our our brains a, is a predictive machine, and actually we can. Mm. Sort of we can try and hack that in a sense to try and to just try and help people with um, uh, persistent pain.
1: Yeah, I, I, you mentioned the hypnotherapy as well. Mm. And, I, and I wanted to, to talk about this. I'm glad you mentioned that because I think there is an expectation that hypnotherapy works for people who are more suggestible than mm. others. And it's a particular person that would respond best to hypnotherapy. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that because you've experienced hypnotherapy yourself I think it's one of the things that has led to to healing in your case um, and and, and I, I guess this ties into the emotional brain and how that can be used and harnessed to to reduce pain overall like back pain as well yeah yeah
0: definitely um, so and that's a, it's a really interesting question about sort of susceptibility to um to, to hypnosis um or to, to hypnotherapy uh, um and I think there's a lot of debate debate in that area but so basically I I was researching the book um a couple of years ago um and went to I saw that, that basically I, I researched basically any kind of cure for my, my 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 IBS and often it's in many many cases it's it's mainly dietary which is a cause of it but in many cases it's Often it's a case of both. It's it's the brain and and the gut, but they're so interlinked, and the gut affects the brain massively, and the, the brain also affects the gut. But it, in mine, it seemed to predominantly predominantly be related to distressful events. Um, and yeah, so I, I went to this hypnotherapist, not not to have any hypnotherapy myself, but to interview him about the hypnotherapy for the book. And he said, "Oh, what do, do, do you do? have do you have any any, any sort of um." Uh, pain issues pain or anything like that we oh, yeah, have ibs for a bit and it, we we did a session and he recorded it and then i took the recording home and sort of for, for 10 20 minutes every morning did this um, hypnotherapy and i'll explain a bit more about what it is and within and didn't do anything for about a month but then after after about six weeks it started to to get better and then in two three months afterwards it it's only come back sort of once or twice when i was very very stressed um so it was I was just absolutely blown away by it I think a lot of people have kind of uh sort of quite odd uh, you know I i would never been taught about hypnotherapy at med school um I was very dismissive of it I you know thought of hypnotherapists as sort of you know people on stages getting getting you know audience members to come up and sort of plucked like chickens or um or things like that or it seemed quite sinister taking over someone's brain and taking control away from them um but it's not like that at all. It's essentially getting you to just completely re- to relax and to direct the focus of your attention in different ways, and then through that, um, the suggestions are for, of the, the hypnotherapist, uh, the theory is that you're you're more likely to to, to take on what they're saying on, on board. It's it's, it's it's what I had in se- essentially was quite similar to a sort of a very relaxing type of CBT with visualization. I think. I don't want to say that hypnotherapy is a miracle cure for everyone, because it's not. And there are lots of different types of sort of talking therapies. Um, and um, you know, so some people are, are evangelists for, for specific ones. But actually, I think there are, there are a number that have shown to be beneficial um, with people with persistent pain, and it might be different for other people, um, for specific people. But I think they need to have, I think, convey a sense of safety and a sense of hope as well. But the interesting thing about the, the the hypnotherapy that I had was it um, focused a lot on, on visualisation. And I think visualisation is really, really uh, useful because a lot of our, most of our, our well, not most of our brain, but a large part of our brain is dedicated to visual processing. Um, and my um, IBS had become sort of etched on my brain. It had become rewired on my brain. And I thought, well, you know, what's a good way of tackling this is actually through... Um, through using sort of visual visualization and visual cues to kind of to to sort of steal back my brain um and so essentially what 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 it got me to do when I was sort of relaxed and focusing on different sort of elements of um, the environment around me or my body was to imagine my sort of my sort of intestines as a a rocky rapids and then to gradually enter whenever I have a flare-up to imagine them as sort of so I live near a uh, very sort of relaxed bit of the Thames, just, just sort of the languid Thames, sort of punts floating down it, and um, just a, just a, that very kind of crude sort of visual change. But doing that sort of religiously for, for a while really did work, and there have been a number of cases of. So there was a quite, quite prominent, prominent um, pain doctor called uh, Michael Moskowitz in in, um, in in the US who had horrendous pain. Um, and what he did was a horrendous sort of, um, sort, of, sort of persistent neck pain. And what he essentially did, he, he did loads of research and he ended up drawing a picture of his brain and all the areas where so, sort of the pain areas of the brain, not a specific pain area, but areas that are associated with pain. And he drew them in sort of red and sort of, sort of overgrown and covering most of his brain. And then he had another picture of those areas shrinking. And what he did is he just, whenever he had a flare-up, he just, um, he imagined those areas shrinking. And it didn't, didn't, again, it didn't work for months, but after a lot of persistence, it actually did work. And, and that's a very extreme example. And I don't think that should be a first line treatment for persistent pain necessarily, because it's using, using that, that kind of, using visualization and cognitions in that sense can be very hard work and doesn't work for everyone. Um, but maybe things like virtual reality might help with that. Um, and, uh, and different types of therapy might, might be able to sort of harness visualization to, to help reduce pain.
1: to go on about all the various afflictions that you might have had in your life but you start the the book by talking about how you um stepped on a on a fish hook Mm. um and obviously that was very painful at the time you had an injury you had that treated but at some point later down the line a small uh stimuli elicited quite an exaggerated response Mm. Mm. and i think that's a nice way to talk about how your brain had wired had essentially learned to react in quite a an exaggerated way to protect yourself so all these concepts that we have talked about thus far are sort of coming into play here and i wonder if we could talk about how those fibers are uh, built and 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 wired around that experience that can actually be dismantled to 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 use that word if i can um, to, to reduce the experience of pain. Is that, is, is that a good way to, yeah, to definitely, talk to
0: definitely. about perhaps? Before I do that, I just realized I didn't properly answer your last question about the sort of the susceptibility to, to um, hypnotherapy. Oh, there's, so hypnotherapy there's, well, there's a yeah. bit of evidence that 5%, 10% of people are like very susceptible, very, very kind of suggestible, and 5 10% of people aren't suggestible at all. Whether that means hypnotherapy won't work for those people in terms of, say, pain it's 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 up for debate but i think for for a lot of people it could be a path worth worth chasing all different types of therapies that are, that are similar but yeah that, i think that um yeah the the the, the fish story was when i was in one of my first years of years, uh, first couple of years of medical school in the easter holidays i went with a group of friends to to, to west wales and um we played beach cricket and i i like sport but i've not not ball sports i'm not very coordinated so i was sent out right of the corner of the cricket pitch or whatever they call it on, on the beach so I could sort of look at the you know look at the scenery and not get not get too involved basically what happened was I I was running across the beach and I I didn't notice it at the time but some my sort of right foot sort of when it landed on one bit of sand it sort of moved up a little bit a little bit quicker than it usually would do and I looking back on it, I thought that maybe it was a slightly sharper than usual pebble didn't think anything of it until a few minutes later, I sort of glanced behind me, and there was a sort of a serpentine, sort of snake-like object, and the ground was behind me. So I jumped up, and I, was, I think assuming it was a snake, and actually it was a, um, yeah, it was a, it was a, a bit of wire that was attached to a, a large rusty fish hook that had got lodged in the in the ball of my foot, and then that's when the pain started. So that, 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 so that was quite interesting. And then when all of my friends came over, and I'm like, oh look at that, that's amazing, and I was sort of quite, I was sort of showing off because it was quite it looked quite impressive the pain reduced and then when I went to the, the harbour wall to think about oh should I go to A&E or should I try and prize it out at the moment the pain went up and just the, the very process of me trying to think about how I was going to get the hook out of my foot made it go up to you know a nine out of ten so basically it was initially a not naught, naught one out of ten then it went up to a seven eight then when my friend saw it, it went down to a five six and then went up to a nine ten so that sort of made me think okay pain isn't this is the same injury here and pain is completely changing um depending on the contextual cues. so that was that and then it, it healed healed completely and then about a year later I was on a sim, a, a, a beach nearby with my family in a similar part of, of Wales and I was running along with my um, my parents dogs and suddenly I had the most horrendous pain in my right foot and all of my right foot that made me jump Jump off the off the sand and crash on the uh, crash on the beach and grab hold of my foot, and there was maybe the the, the tiniest scratch, but there was basically nothing at all from from a, a stone or something like that. But my brain had looked at all the cues around me. Um, so so when that tiny sensation of when the danger signals came up from that, or not necessarily just pressure and danger signals came up from that little stone on the same place where i had the fish hook a year before the brain had said okay where are we now we're so we're on a on the beach in west wales um oh what happened this time last year yeah monty's skin barrier was was breached by a very infectious probably um, uh object so the brain decided to predict just decided to create pain and that's often what happens i mean that's quite a quite a mild example of what happens in persistent pain, but the brain takes uh, memories, but also the increase of, uh, of, of sort of danger signals that come through to the brain after pain, during the healing process and beyond the healing process, makes the brain on hyper alert for any other, um, any other kind of pain. And, and trauma in the past can, can feed into that. Um, and past experience can feed into that and past pain and inflammation can 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 feed into that essentially what there's there's, there's a there's a phrase in some neuroplasticity that um, as the neurons that um, fire together wire together so essentially if a particular path is used more often than, than, than other ones then that will get stronger and then if it's not used it's sort of use it or lose it um, and then and in persistent pain often even when the injury is completely healed those paths can have already begun the the, the stage of sort of rewiring and can become completely lodged in the brain it's like I, it's like sort of running I, I like going for runs through a forest uh near where I live and you can if I if you follow one of the, the paths through the vegetation that lots of runners go down then it gets then the path gets more consolidated but if I start to go down Somewhere where there's no path at all, then over and I can do that every day over so weeks, months. Sort of the vegetation will be sort of beaten down by feet, and a new path will be created. It's a, it's a slow, slow and steady process. But um, that's how pain can get stuck in the brain. But it's also um, by understanding that we can begin to actually, can actually reduce pain in some in some cases, completely eliminate it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really good analogy and and useful way of describing how neuroplasticity works. I think. Some of us have heard of that neurons that fire together wire together, but that that sort of patching down the grass and seeing these like well trodden paths, I think that's a really nice way of conceptualizing it. I'd I'd love to.
0: I was going to say it's almost like it's not quite like learning, but it's like whenever we you know uh, learn a new instrument or a new language, we are consolidating different pathways. And you can, in, exactly. in a sense, you can you can learn pain. I don't I don't tend to like using that because it suggests that you're actively trying to make the pain worse. But actually, that pain becomes learned on the brain. Yeah, it can, it can become unlearned.
1: Yes, yes. Actually, I was going to talk about this a bit later, but what, why don't we talk about those practices that you've put uh, in the book to unlearn the pain? Mm-hmm. Um, we we talked about one of them, visualization, and and um, I think it was Muskovitz. Mo, is that his name? Yes. The the uh, person who had the um, the uh, research who had the neck pain, and through time and time, I think I think with the one one of the things with a lot of these. Um, practices is that it, it's a it's a huge time commitment oh, yeah. um mm-hmm. you know it's it's not something as simple as taking a medication which mm-hmm. is obviously i mean we're, we're obviously going to default to the path of least resistance you know we're, we're we're creatures of sort of like you know ease these days and mm-hmm. i think this is just to frame it for the listener th- th- these are tough practices mm-hmm. that that will, will, will require lots of investment um, but but yeah perhaps we could talk a, a little bit again about the visualization element mm. and what modern techniques that you think you mentioned vr that we could potentially be using in pain medicine to to help people along the journey
0: yeah that's that's really good i think you make a really good point that actually the visualization element is is a time consuming and it can be very effective but can be a tricky one and actually i think so I kind of, it's, you know, the, the book itself is not, it's not a self-help book, but, I, but in the last chapter, I focus on what I see as sort of evidence-based treatments for um, different types of persistent pain. And often, obviously everyone's pain is unique. Um, so different things can work for different people, but I split it into sort of three, set, three things. It's the first one's alteration. So it's altering the environment of your brain, making your brain feel safe in its body. So that's not, that's not visualization necessarily. So that's, that's one separate one and then there's visualization um and then um then there's sort of education sort of knowledge is power and I actually i think if i can maybe start with the first two before i look at visualization potentially just because i think um the, the visualization ones might be at, at this point in time probably shouldn't necessarily be the first port of call or if they are they can be used alongside um uh, the other the other elements so essentially um Alterations so that making the brain feel safe in its body are doing daily practice, doing doing things throughout the day that um, can essentially reduce pain and, as I said, make the brain feel safe in its body. So one of these, for example, is movement, and any any kind of movement. Often, when we're in pain, we can understandably not want to not want to move at all. And in, in the past, so bed rest was recommended for lots of musculoskeletal issues. Um, and actually that's not, for most things, that's not actually very, for a short period of time, of course, that's, that's important, but actually starting to move cra- really gradually within, within your, your abilities at the time and just to persist with that is, is so important because that is, uh, so exercise generally is re- reducing inflammation and we can talk a bit more about inflammation maybe uh, uh, later on, but it's actually sending signals to your brain that your body is strong, your body is safe. Um, and in most cases of persistent pain, the the risk of not moving is much worse than the risk of moving. Um, obviously, with whatever pain condition you have, you talk to um, your doctor or clinician about the, the the safety of being able to move. But in most cases, um, you're safe to move. Doesn't mean you need to go and prepare for a marathon, but it's just it's just getting out and doing all kinds of movement. I I I, I spoke to Betson Corkill, who is um, she. Had to, has done some amazing work and studies into knitting and paint and actually has found that um knitting essentially is, a, is, is, is an amazing way of rewiring the brain because it's it's it's, it's a, a repetitive movement it uses sort of both sides of the body and and sort of combines sort of visualization in a sense actually and um but also movement and slowly expanding your your sort of your red zone, your area of, of, of safety, if that makes sense. So when you're in pain, often you can you can become really withdrawn because because your brain's in sort of threat mode. But actually, it's it's sort of being able to slowly interact with the outside world. So that's movement. Uh, in a sense, things like breathing exercises. I won't go into too much detail, but they but they can be really really helpful. And anything that I mean, it's easy to say anything you know, reduce your stress, but with anything that reduces stress, reduces can reduce pain um, and can reduce inflammation as well and often there's the 80 20 rule with that so it's sort of you know 80% of the effect the stress reduction comes with 20% of the effort focusing on the the key things um, and then diet is a huge element of that as well it's like um I don't want to use too, too many analogies but if I, you know our, our, our body is a beautiful garden and with our diet we can sort of create good soil for it and there are some very Again, we can go into a bit more a bit more detail if, if we have time. But um, there are there's some very basic things that one can do with their diet to reduce inflammation because there's interesting research that suggests that the bridge between short-term pain and long-term pain can be accelerated by inflammation in the body and, and, and the brain. And actually inflammation in the brain can 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 worsen pain. So those are and and then also with sort of alteration. Um, various different types of, uh, of psychological therapies, but also um, there are some there are some sort of uh, new, uh, newer uh, therapies like pain reprocessing therapies that combine pain education with getting um, people to understand or understand their pain and also start to move, and then also elements of sort of cognitive and behavioural therapy with that, which I think is is very promising for the for the future. Um, so those there's, there's some elements of alter, altering the brain, sort of making the brain feel safe in its body. But I think. The most important thing generally is, is pain education, is understanding what pain is and what it isn't. I think it's very hard, hard to rewire a system you don't understand. Uh, and I don't think understanding your pain will cure your pain, uh, although there's some evidence that some sort of pain teaching courses some very good ones can actually reduce pain intensity. Um, but I think that's the, that's the logical starting point. <clears throat> and there are lots of free resources out there, like um, flipping pain is a really good, um whereas if you national essentially it's a, it's a pain education group charity that that, that are involved in sort of educating people and there are some amazing resources that they have online. and then there are there are also some um apps that some people find quite useful. um so there's one called curable it's inter- it's internal evidence from the app, so I don't know how, but there's, 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 there's there are lots of people who find it very useful and that kind of uses pain education um and and so sort of daily practices is essentially focusing on sort of rewiring your brain so i think pain education is and i think pain education for clinicians as well in, in medical schools you know, i think that's that's mm. that's so key i think that's um yeah it's a really important area that i think just everyone in society needs to needs, needs to understand these things and understanding actually that um um social injustice worsens pain so um, basically anything that increases your sense of threat can worsen pain and the very things that the torturers do to make pain worse even without minimal physical injury things like um isolation verbal verbal abuse making a humiliation dejection is something that is can, can worsen pain and is exactly the same thing that happens with Um, people who are marginalised by society or people who are isolated. There are some interesting studies that, uh, a big one in Sweden in 2020, that showed that uh, migrants to to Sweden, regardless of race, were more likely to have pain conditions, sort of chronic pain conditions. And people of the same race who have moved from, say, so there's one study of, um, this is a bit of a a smaller study, but of um, Indians who've uh, uh, migrated to America were more likely to have chronic pain than um indians from the same area of india back in india and is the element of 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 this this is this is first generation but the idea of kind of um injustice um can have even conscious very conscious nor also very subconscious effects on on worsening pain people who are isolated are much more likely to have pain so i think there's a huge need for and we call it social prescribing but i think every not just clinicians but everyone has a responsibility to support people who are isolated in pain get them to do things where they are moving where there's interaction interacting with other people, with people but they're laughing they're in singing in choirs and things like that and or getting involved in it in, in clubs and things like that i think that's it sounds very woolly but actually it's it's neuroscience absolutely so that's that's so the, the, i think those are kind of the the, the the key things anything that can make the brain feel safe in its body can reduce pain um, and then and then you've got visualization which i think there are um some specific things that it can be really useful for so for things like phantom limb pain um and um, certain types of pain that are very limited to certain limbs in the body things like um that mirror boxes can be amazing so that's that's also very i won't get into too much detail but essentially it's if you if you're missing say you, you, you had a left arm amputated what you do is you put your right arm into a mirror into a box with a mirror in the middle of it and it looks like you have your left arm in the box and if you and this is assuming that you have pain associated with your, um, um, usually your phantom limb pain. So usually the limb is sort of stuck in a position because your brain's re- rewired. Up. It's quite a complex area, but basically the very, the very move, seeing the very movements of your your, the the sort of phantom hand, hand moving can actually sometimes completely eliminate eliminate the, eliminate the pain. And then vision, and then VR can be really helpful. I think there's some studies that. Um, children who have had so in the post-operative periods they've had operations um, need far less who've been given sort of post-op vr um sort of relaxation therapy sessions where they can choose to go to to space or to a beach or i think jungles another one or something like that they can they use they need half the amount of opioids and they get out of hospital early and they and presumably i mean there needs to be more research to recover better so i think There is some hope for the visualisation element of it, but I think there are some really low-hanging fruit that 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 we can that we can we can address. Just single single little changes in in people's lives can make big differences.
1: Yeah, there's huge. I mean, there's so much there that I want to pick out on there. So, I mean, if anyone's listening to this, I think you've eloquently described all the different areas that perhaps are overlooked today, but will become hopefully more commonplace but if anyone knows anyone with pain or suffers with pain themselves there are a few actionable things that you can do like you said your, your, your book isn't designed to be a, a self-help book i think it really leads into the education aspect of those three things that you said i completely agree i think better education about what pain actually is is critical because it helps you with all the other elements the rewiring the stories that you tell yourself, the understanding about the emotional connection with the severity of your pain, the other ways in which you can alter it using movement and, and, uh, and breath work, uh, I believe you talked about, and then the visualization element, which is uh, quite an investment in time. The knitting element I found really fascinating, actually, oh. the fact that these rhythmic movements can be related to serotonin release and, and also that that sense of community, I guess, you know, that it can be something that you do with people. And I, I wanted to ask actually about the, the loneliness aspect mm. and how that can exacerbate pain. Mm. Um, and also the connection between lack of social cohesion and, uh, and pain. And I think we don't have as much of a problem in the UK, but certainly in the US, there is a, an opioid crisis. Mm. It's, mm. you know, it, it's certainly being pegged towards disparities in society as well in marginalized communities, you know, the the age old, I think it was like the just say no campaign. I think we're, we're realizing how flawed that messaging was because the root cause when you go upstream is not the availability of drugs oh, yeah. and the, uh, the opportunity to just mm-hmm. say, no, it's actually something far, mm-hmm. far rooted in, in, the, in the societal aspects of why people choose to use pain relieving, drugs Mm
0: -hmm. oh that's 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 so true it's a a tragic story and uh, and that's a really good point in that it's the the people who are who are in pain and using these drugs are not given any uh, uh, in in the present they're not given any other option but also there is there are huge societal issues that are are driving this That's, that's been a terrible situation and i think so again understanding in terms of socialized isolation, understanding things from a survival point of view, and that pain is a protector, the pain of rejection is very similar to to pain itself. So there was a, a study in, I've done in twenty fifteen at UCLA where they had people playing apparently a very very boring online game called Cyberball, where essentially you're passing a ball between different people. Over, I guess a bit like football, uh, and then at some point the the, sort of imagine, the, the people you're playing with, because you can't see them, but you're imagining that you're playing with them. They start passing to each other and don't pass to you. And they, they are also um, doing some brain scans at the same time. And they found that when you're, you're playing this game with them and when you're isolated and rejected, the same areas in your brain that light up when you're in quote-unquote physical pain uh, light up as well. And if you look at it from a protective point of view, if you are marginalised from a, a group, a tribe, um, people generally, your brain is gonna go into protective mode. And that just that in and of itself is 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 you know fuel for, for pain's fire. And then again, the I, I social isolation is there are some, some epidemiological studies that say it is as bad for your physical health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day due to various different to various different things. And that, that sense of isolation is just so being on being on your own, not being in a group, not being sort of not being um, loved or, or recognised, or I guess I guess sort of being able to have purpose and things like that, um, directly worsen pain and can make it much more likely for a short-term pain to, to to become wired on on the brain. Um, so I think that's that's an enormous issue, and you know, I think if that's the the very same methods that sort of um, people who inflict torture due to to, um, to people i i, I interviewed uh, a man uh, an australian man called evan who was in the australian sas and in 2006 essentially he was in a in a training camp in, in, in australia and was essentially tortured he was meant to be going through some kind of um interrogation techniques but the people who who did it essentially abused and tortured him Um, for about 96 hours until he passed out Um, and he actually didn't have very much sort of physical injury during that that period but he ended up having horrendous whole body pain for for about uh, well for seven years and the only thing that really stopped um that stopped the pain was when his he, he finally won his his court case against the the australian military um and it was just that sort of sense of as sl- slightly different things like, um, than, than isolation, but it's just a sense of injustice, um, being oppressed, caused pe- whole, whole body pain. He couldn't go into he couldn't sort of go into a, a pool, swimming pool or a bath that wasn't a certain temperature. He he sometimes couldn't put his put his boots on. He was in so much pain. The brain had just gone into into hyper hyper vigilance, hyper protective mode. And w- there are some interesting studies that show that people who have a strong sense of justice a strong sense that the that the world is you know that there's there's good and bad and and these people and people who are very sort of um uh conscientious actually they tend to have worse chronic pain sadly because because and that when i did when i read that study as well i just thought you know that that should be a sort of a clarion call for 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 clinicians but for people to help people who are in really help people who are in um, persistent pain because it's just when you're in that position um it's not impossible but it's it's yeah it's impossible to do it on your own it's so hard to do it on your own and that's why i think um there need to be structural whole, whole societal structural changes but also um i think starting with education for everyone i think is, is key.
1: yeah i i um I wrote that down in my mind. Actually, that this this sentence from your book, perceived injustice, is like petrol for pain's fire, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that really just spoke to me. And and something that you mentioned earlier as well, from my anecdotal experience working in different areas in London over the last twelve years, I've certainly seen people, and at the risk of confirmation by bias, here, but I've certainly seen people from uh, different backgrounds, migrants, it, have more sort of severe experiences with pain mm-hmm. and actually it was quite a well-known phenomena in the various a that I've worked mm-hmm. uh, in, in North and, and uh, in East London as well. Um, I, I could honestly talk to you for so long. There's so many different elements of your book that have given me a new understanding of pain, particularly in one of the chapters actually where you talk about religion mm-hmm. and um, the, the various interpretations from Buddhism and uh christianity and islam around uh, their perception of pain and, and why we experience pain and how it's sort of uh uh related to to this their, their faith um but I, I i wanted to close actually by asking you a bit more about your writing process because mm. this there's, there's like a wonderful flow through your your book you know it's a it's a, a great interplay of stories being vulnerable and telling your, your, your personal stories, as well as uh, a, a lovely sort of um, introduction to all these like rich studies that give us a better perspective on pain um, all wrapped up nicely in, in the final chapter. What, how, how do you write? Like, how, 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 talk me through that process and you've got some great interviews as well. Some incredible people, you know, people who have genetic, uh, um, uh, g- genetic uh, snips that, uh, that, that mean that they don't experience pain. They have various uh, issues. So yeah, to t- talk me through that.
0: Uh, yeah, that's, that's a, a really interesting question. I think this was just uh, an un- unusually for me, as an unusually natural process of writing, in a sense that actually, when I, I had this sort of revelation to my to myself that that actually pain is completely different to what I to what I thought it was, and. I wanted basically I wanted to have that as the the core of the the book, so I outline that at the beginning and then sort of bring it home at the end with evidence based studies, so to 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 make it practical at the end. But I think I mean, I think the best way of learning anything I think is with a story. Um, You know, I'm currently. Revising for some um, specialty exams at the moment, and, and similar to the stuff I'm going through, is just really boring bullet point stuff. And I'm just forgetting it all the time. And actually, when I if I'm uh, read about it in a uh, in, in a book or listen to in a podcast, uh, it's just and, and and it's sort of told in the story. I, it's you know we we were sort of you know, we're made to sort of tell and listen to stories. So I, I wanted to kind of bring bring out stories throughout the whole uh, the whole book um, with the kind of the spine of it being knowing that sort of, knowing what pain actually is, it's a, it's a protective mechanism, it's not a, not a detector of tissue damage. Um, and then I wanted that to be through interesting studies. So I did do a big literature review beforehand. Um, and the, also trying and sort of, I sort of feel, like, feel like a journalist trying to find sort of interesting experiences with, with different patients who have had, who basically, who, if there's a point I want to make, a really interesting case study of potentially of very rare patients can be a really interesting way of understanding um biology uh, and psychology so as you said yeah the patient uh, the, the very small number of people who don't feel any don't feel any pain at all the good thing about uh, in terms of the writing process is that i had uh, some pain experiences myself that actually it, it all just came together uh in that sense and then the the the, the general idea i wanted it to be sort of biopsychosocial so i wanted it to have kind of um i wanted to break down dualism or what sort of saying earlier and and have that kind of as a theme throughout the whole book but also have areas that are are more sort of quote-unquote biological um more sort of psychological um and more more social and then looking at things like religion and I think I just uh, I think it's just great to understand the whole body the whole human uh, using I I love using things that kind of seem a bit I did this with the skin book as well the skin was something that seems quite sort of mundane um, and pain is something that we don't really want to talk about. And I wanted to use these things as prisms through which we can see the kind of the beauty of humanity and 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 the body and society, or the, the the positives, the the negatives, and I, that was kind of the the way I wanted to do it. But I think it definitely this I found this, I found this very natural to do because it was there was a, it was a genuine revelation uh, to me that made me want to write the book. Whereas with the, the book about skin, which I uh, I loved writing, it was, had to be more sort of rigid and structured, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, that's brilliant. And and, and you're you working on a few other things at the moment. So uh, moving towards psychiatry, but you're also an academic clinical fellow and you have an interest in uh, the gut-brain axis and the microbiota. Tell us a bit more, a bit more about that. Yeah. I,
0: the, so I wasn't at med school. I wasn't interested in diet at all i was
1: no neither was i <laughs> it's
0: really, it's, 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 it's really told about it and it's um and i was i was quite sported when i was a teenager did, did triathlons and, and running and things like that and i kind of i was always like oh yeah i sort of um i eat to live i don't live to eat i can eat whatever i want because i'm really fit which is probably a terrible terrible thing for me at, at the time and i didn't really think nutrition played that much of a, a role in physical health but in all the so I, I'm really interested in the relationship between the body, um, the body and the brain uh, and improving psychiatry through that. Actually, looking at the relationship between the gut and the brain and the, the effect that the gut has on the brain and vice versa is amazing. And I'm starting to try and get to grips with the gut microbiome. The research that I might be doing is, are we trying to adjust the gut microbiome, whether it's by, um, by, by diet or prebiotics or whether in certain groups it might be Assisted with the medication potentially to improve cognition um, in in different um, conditions. Whether it's the things I'm, I'm interested in, are, are people with psychosis and schizophrenia, um, a huge part of their life is is ruined by reduction in um, cognition and not being able to task or remember things well. But also people living with long COVID um, or long long COVID ME um, post viral syndromes who have terrible sort of cognitive issues that are, seem to be largely related to inflammation. And you know, if we alter the gut microbiome, then you know we can make huge, huge leaps there. And actually I've started to to change my own diet over the last year kind of because of that. And I found that um I've actually noticed that huge changes in my my energy, my alertness, um, and my over, overall mood and well-being through some just some 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 minor changes, which are essentially um, eating lots of different types of plants so increasing fiber yeah. to kind of feed my, uh-huh. my my gut microbes and sort of um having more fermented food in my in my diet and i'm planning to i'll, I'll try and see if i can make more changes but i'm, I'm trying to do things gradually
1: that's epic
0: yeah. so i, I think I, so it's just it's just i think it's i think the yeah the the, the gut the gut brain relationship is just so interesting it's also very very complex which makes it tricky but also very very fun and very interesting uh, you know the, the immune system the probably the most complex elements of the human body are probably the immune system and the immune system the the microbiome and neuroscience and they all kind of merge together in terms of um diet the gut and the brain and i think there's i think it's going to be a huge change in um the way we treat and pre- prevent diseases through diet it's going to be it's going to be huge and the work that you do is incredible in that in that sense so it's, it's yeah so i think a lot of the research i might be doing will be looking into into the gut microbiome
1: that would be fantastic i mean if you can can deal with the complexity of pain and look mm-hmm. at the different um triggers uh and uh, the complexity of emotions and all these mm-hmm. different uh, things that have an interplay with with how we perceive pain I'm I'm confident you're going to do a great job with the uh, the gut brain axis and the microbiome, microbiome. So please do write a book on that, and please do like chronicle everything that you do as you go along, because I I, I would be fascinated to to hear your interpretation of of the field as oh, it is and where you think up, it's I'm going I'm planning as well, to write yeah, so. um, to, to,
0: to, to to see how this goes. I think it's going to be brilliant
1: yeah yeah no I'd love that and uh please do come on again whenever you want to talk about that stuff because uh obviously I I love it so yeah yeah yeah. and if you need any people that you need to interview I've got a a number of suggestions I'm sure you're already aware of uh APC and the night lab and obviously Tim Spector's work and stuff so yeah I think those are definitely people that you'd want to feature in in the book and uh yeah no that, that 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 sounds wonderful great well, thank you so much, Monty. Honestly, this has been such a great conversation. Oh, I, I love the book. I, I really, genuinely love it. And uh, I can't wait for people to read it. It's, it's bad. Thanks so much,
0: Rupi. Absolutely love the chat. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast episode. Remember, you can get the book, The Painful Truth. The uh, link is in the caption on whatever podcast player you're listening to. Connect with Monty at Monty underscore Lyman on Twitter, on Instagram. The links are all there as well. And don't forget to download the Doctor's Kitchen app and also check out the newsletter at thedoctorskitchen.com. I'm sure you'll find it useful, inspiring every single week. And I will see you here next time.